when we're in an organization, what level of trust do we have with our leaders that they will make decisions that are good for all? And what trust do we have in the people who, who report into us, who will likely have to delegate decisions to? Hello, and welcome to Interest. My name is Rick Kitagawa. And my name is Lisa Lambert. And thanks for joining us for our show about the greatest asset for leaders, organizations, and communities alike, trust. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Michelle Florendo, a decision engineer and award-winning coach for type A professionals who uses a blend of decision engineering, design thinking, and lean startup principles to help her clients achieve their goals. Michelle is also the host of the podcast, Ask a Decision Engineer has guest taught on career decision-making in Stanford's famous Design Your Life course, was a founding member of the Forbes Coaches Council, Coaches for Startup Parent, and teaches a course on decision-making for Stanford Continuing Studies. But before we dive in, a quick word from our sponsors. The future is now here, both in the metaphysical sense as well as the book sense. Our new book, The Future is Trust, Embracing the Era of Trust-Centered Leadership is now available in both ebook and paperback formats on Amazon and most places where books are sold online. So go get your copy. We are so excited to bring this reimagination of what a leadership book can be. And whether you prefer a clean tech-centric ebook or the full color photo print edition, we've been intentional in cutting out the fluff to bring you a book full of actionable and practical insights that will help you build the trust needed to help your organization thrive and build a resilient culture. If you haven't got your copy yet, visit thefutureistrust.com to pick one up today. And if you have got your copy, we would love an honest review on Amazon. Trust is better together. So we hope you'll join us in our quest to make the world a more trustworthy and trusted place and get your copy of The Future is Trust. Michelle, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to be here. People can't see it, but I am smiling ear to ear because I love you both. (laughs) I'm so glad to Michelle. And I don't think people get to meet a decision engineer every day. So for people who are just getting to meet you for the first time, could you maybe share a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'd say my the official title is I'm a decision engineer and an executive coach, but I'll also add on to that. I'm also a mother of two little humans and a wife and a resident of the Bay area and a wannabe gardener. Just thinking of like, what are all the other things? Cause sometimes, you know, you introduce yourself and like, this is my title, but there's so much more. Right. But professionally, what I do is I'm a decision engineer and an executive coach. Thanks for that. And I really appreciate you sharing the richness of just this is a human, not a title coming into this place. Um, I think we so quickly forget that and zero ran on that. And I feel like I didn't set you up very well either on the intro. So I just, I really appreciate that so much. And I am still going to double click though on the decision engineer piece of it to go into, I think people know executive coach, but part of that, I'm not trying to press or force you into, into a hat on this one. I think it's a really interesting one though, because I think it connects to each and every one of us. We all make hundreds of decisions each day and don't necessarily think about the level that you do. So I just love to create space to unpack. What is a decision engineer? Right. So First, I'm going to say decision engineer is the title that other people have been giving me because it's a shorter way of explaining 
the backstory of like, how did I end up in this space? And how did I come to know the things that I know? And so a little bit of that backstory, I did study decision engineering at Stanford when I was an undergrad. And so it is an actual field. That's sometimes one of the first questions I get decision engineering. That's a thing. I've never heard of it. And then sometimes the follow-up question is, wait, does that mean you can teach me how to make better decisions? Cause I suck at it. Like, oh yes, we should continue to have this conversation. And so as you can imagine, when you hear the word engineering, right? Like there's chemical engineering, computer engineering, structural engineering, engineers build solutions according to a system of rules and frameworks and that type of thing, right? And it's funny because I, I find that when you put engineer next to the word decision, it seems like such an oxymoron for some folks because decisions often feel super messy and complex and unsolvable sometimes it feels like in the moment. And so, yes, I'm a decision engineer because I studied decision engineering, but I say that that's also the work that I do now because I provide people with structure and clarity to be able to untangle big, messy decisions. That's super cool. And I really like you calling in just the messiness of the human experience. And I think that goes to something that we've been talking about a lot around you know, the term soft skills, because our human skills, so much of these human or people, or we'd like to call them trust centered skills mm. are really mm -hmm. about, they're really complex and yeah. people think they're not hard because it's not like, uh, here is a right answer, but I think they're even harder in terms of difficulty because of all of the nuance and complexity and individual relationships that go into these. And so I think a framework around making better decisions is so helpful and so needed, but I'd like to dive even a little bit further. So I know you studied decision engineering at Stanford, but how did you decide to pursue that path initially? And pun is totally intended. <laughs> you know what? It, it actually found me. So Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go way back in time here, and I'm gonna talk about what I what was the thing that I actually wanted to be when I grew up. And so, when I was small, and this is so appropriate because my son started kindergarten this week. So when I was in kindergarten, I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. And then when I was in the first grade, I wanted to be a first grade teacher. And second grade, I wanted to be a second grade teacher. And this continued for years. I wanted to be a teacher. That is what I really wanted to do. I wanted to be able to help others learn whatever it is that they needed to learn to do whatever they wanted to do. And I thought, oh, that's what teachers do. But somewhere along the way, oh, and she was such a great teacher, one of my best teachers ever heard me say that. And she said, don't do that. That'd be such a waste of your brain. Whoa. And like, I went home and cried that day. And it was so heartbreaking because if you think about it, I wanted to be her and now I, I did spend some time working in public education on the operational side. And so now I understand where her sentiment came from. She was a really great teacher, but she was young. And given the way that teacher compensation worked at the time and maybe still does in some places, you could be an excellent teacher, but you are not recognized for it sometimes. And so I think that's what she was feeling. And I understand that now, but even just that, that one line changed my trajectory because, you know, after I went home and cried, I thought, well, if I'm not going to be a teacher, what am I going to be? 
guess I'm really good at math and science. Uh, and my parents are immigrants and I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer, but engineer seems acceptable. <laughs> so I started thinking through and researching the different disciplines within engineering, right? I researched chemical engineering, mechanical engineering, and there was actually a, a high school outreach event that Stanford was doing because I, I grew up about 20 minutes away from Stanford and the Filipino group was leading a session and the, the head of the Filipino club was an industrial engineer. I thought, what is that? And he said, it's the engineering of efficiency. I thought, oh, that sounds so cool. And so I went into Stanford and I thought, I'm going to be an industrial engineer. And then at that time, when I started, they rearranged a bunch of the different uh, departments, created a mashup department called management science and engineering. And one of the subtracts was decision engineering. I thought, that is cool. I never learned how to actually make a decision. What is the process? I thought you just decide. And so I really fell into it. It, it was a twisty, windy decision, I guess, but one I'm really grateful for. Thank you for sharing that story. I think it's one I'm really grateful for knowing you and just knowing the extraordinary human that you are and the generosity you bring for others. But I think that story has a happy ending in it as well, that even though kind of your dream crush of being a teacher has come full circle and you are a teacher yes. and you are so generous in sharing your knowledge, your gifts, your generosity with other people. So I think there's, there's a happy ending to that, that winding road that you've approached with such empathy in this. And I want to latch on to the point you said that you, you were never taught before, you know, how to make decisions, which is kind of a funny thing considering we're all, you know, in the business of decisions every single day and right. to not have ever really, like, I don't ever remember in school going through a framework for this. And it was kind of, you know, much later when I was working in the workplace and understanding risk management, risk inventories, and kind of thinking through like, what's our collective process for this at scale, which is a pretty overwhelming way to get put into it. So I'm just, I'm curious from your perspective, what do you think are some of the major pitfalls or barriers that get in the way of us making better decisions or get in the way of us making decisions at all? Because so many of us just avoid them right. instead. So one of the things that I want to put out there is I feel like I've encountered so many people who feel a certain way around decisions or they encounter a decision, they run the other way, or if they need to face a decision, it doesn't feel good. And one of the things that I want to make clear is that if that is the feeling that you have around decisions, it is not your fault. There's so much going on. I mean, one, we've never been taught usually a process for moving through these decisions. And so we haven't really been scaffolded into being able to face the things that we need to face. Also, if you think about just what, what has been happening in society over the past hundred years, I mean, there's, there's more decisions that we need to make every single day than people who lived even a hundred years ago. There's more options than ever before. There's more information available. And somehow because there's more information available, it seems even higher stakes like, oh, we should be able to use the information at hand and make the right decision. So there's even more of an expectation to make a right decision, which leads to more of a fear of making a wrong decision, which then leads to more paralysis, more stress, and more just stuckness. And I'm just gonna call it feeling feelings around decision-making. In our household, whenever little humans or big humans are feeling feelings, we just call it feeling feelings because sometimes we can't name the feeling, but they're there, right? Totally. And you saying that really got me thinking about 
my decision-making process. And I think you're really speaking to a very broad audience of people who feel those feelings around the apprehension of making the wrong decision. And I find myself, I'm going to be a little selfish here and just ask since I have you on the, on the zoom screen, but I feel like I am, I make decisions maybe too quickly. Like I'm on the other side of being more impulsive and, and just run with and be like, yeah, that's a fine decision without really thinking about it. So for people who might be more on the reckless or with higher risk tolerance, we'll call it any frameworks that you would offer people like me around decision-making. Yeah. Well, one thing that I want to say is that I'm, I don't have any sort of value judgment on people who take a lot of time to think through decisions versus people who are more comfortable making a decision on the fly. I think they're just different styles due to however we may have been socialized or just what our internal comfort is with what I'm going to say is sourcing the myriad of ways of knowing or sourcing the the myriad of data sources we can tap into. And so, for example, I, I coach a lot of people who are very cognitively centered. They love their prefrontal cortex. They analyze from like that part of their brain. But I also realize that what that sometimes indicates or can can lead to is you know an overpreference and a skew towards the cognitive can sometimes mean less of a connection to other sources of information like your emotional stream or your somatic cues and sometimes i find that the people who are more comfortable making decisions on the fly it may not necessarily be reckless but maybe they have a little bit more connection to the fast thinking okay so if anyone out there wants to know what is a great book for just understanding how our mind works, there's Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And he talks about how our brain has these two different ways of thinking. There's the thinking slow, that prefrontal cortex, system two, he calls it. And then there's the thinking fast, the part of our brain that um, synthesizes information very quickly, like has evolved from that part of us that needed to be able to do that in order to survive. And some people are more in touch with that versus the other. Of course, the one, the part of our brain that thinks fast also can sometimes produce errors and bias and that type of thing. And so it is, I think it's less of a, should I be making decisions in one way or another, but also just like, how can we examine, can we slow down sometimes and examine what is our process and where are the places where we could fine tune it a bit? Rick's nodding his head along. I want to get to follow up with this because it is super, super interesting conversation. I think for one, because I find this topic really fascinating. I can see myself in your answer, but people can't see. I was like putting up my hand and being like, oh, okay, Michelle's talking about me getting in my head too much. But I really appreciate that you brought this back from this place of non-judgment and just called it, there's different styles to look at this and understanding, like we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Thinking fast and slow is a fantastic book to unpack this and understand ourselves and understand others a little bit more. And that's where I want to kind of nudge you towards a little bit because it's there's one thing in dealing with all the complex and messiness of making our decisions like us as individual humans making decisions in the workplace and in life in general decision making is a team sport right and I'm so curious for your insight about some of the the most common pain points you see in that space and on the counter counter side of that is what do you see as being the elements that facilitate collective decision making Uh, I'm glad that we're we're switching it up to the fact that, yes, there's, because 
as I was thinking about the conversation we would have today, and I was thinking about like, oh yeah, in what ways does trust play into just kind of like, I'm thinking of like greasing the wheels when it comes to decision-making in general. I think about the trust that we have to have in ourselves to be able to make a decision and then like trust 360. Like, can we trust the people like with, when we're in an organization, what level of trust do we have with our leaders that they will make decisions that are good for all? And what trust do we have in the people who, who report into us, who will likely have to delegate decisions to, because there was a there's a McKinsey article earlier this year that talked about the nine keys to, I want to say, um, maybe not future-proofing organizations, but the nine keys to becoming like a future-ready organization. And turbocharging decision-making was one. And they talked about how one of the things that is critical is being able to delegate decisions down to the lowest level possible and really identifying what are the true cross-cutting decisions that do need to be made at, at a higher level. So one just distinguishing the two so that decisions can be made faster. But I think, I think you had asked about pain points. And so one is being able to distinguish between the two, which are the ones that need to be made at certain levels. But I think also when I've interviewed people who are in organizations about their frustrations around decision-making, sometimes there's this, again, it's just the focus on the outcome of the decision process. Like what was the decision and do they agree with it or not? And I think there's an opportunity to have better conversations about decisions, but in order to have better conversations about decisions, we need to have the right language for being able to disentangle, not just what is it that someone thinks we should do, but why? Like what are the, and now I'm going to get into the three components of every decision. Like what are the objectives that they are using and prioritizing? What are the option sets that they were looking at or even not looking at? What is the information that they have or don't have? And, you know, how credible is the source of that information? And I think that if, if people within organizations are better equipped with the language of having that dialogue, it can foster more empathy and more trust and more um, discussion and, and convergence on you know, what might be the right course of action. And even when there is disagreement, at least if there were dialogues that were had at that granular level, at least it can be a, okay, we disagree, but I understand why. Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of really great points there, Michelle. And something I heard is just the power of naming things. And Lisa and I talk a lot about this with our work. I mean, the first facet of trust in our framework is clarity, right? And it's getting clear on, are we using the same words to talk about the same thing? Because so many times we're talking about a buzzword of like, like let's talk about belonging, but it's, what does that mean, right? Or your even decisions, like make a decision. What does that really mean? So I would love to actually take that lens and dive into something that you mentioned of the separation between outcomes versus good decisions. And so I'd love to know what in your mind makes a good decision. Well, first, let me go back to what you're, you're naming. So there is a distinction between the quality of the decision and the quality of the outcome. And I want to make sure that I'm just double clicking into that because sometimes we forget. And that's actually one of the things that produces a lot of stress in the decision-making process when we conflate the two. And so one key thing to remember is that 
there's a common myth out there around the quality of the decision is the same as the quality of the outcome. Meaning if the outcome is good, the decision must have been good. If the outcome was bad, the decision was bad, but that's not actually true. I know some women who are business owners who founded a really fantastic business in 2019. It was a co-working space meant for a diverse community of women, very women focused. And then the pandemic hit the following year. They did their due diligence. They made a good decision, but it was a bad outcome. And so again, yeah, the two are distinct. Going back to your question of then what makes a quality decision? I mean, I'd say it's one that pays attention to the various aspects of the process. There's actually saying that there are another book out there. One of one of the big names in the decision engineering, decision analysis space, Chris Spetzler. He's Oh, not Chris Betzler. Chris Betzler is the head of the Decision Education Foundation, which is a nonprofit that wants to teach these skills to K-12 folks. Heck yes. Yeah, right? Uh, I meant Carl Spetzler. Carl Spetzler, uh, he used to teach at Stanford. He's also one of the co-founders of the Strategic Decisions Group. And he wrote a book, I think it's called Decision Quality. And he talks about the six links of decision quality. And basically what he's saying is, you know, when organizations at least take some time to assess, have we given thought to each of these six elements, the outcomes actually do come out better. And so, you know, a quality of decision is one that, that looks at each of the six and let's see if I can remember what each of the six are. There's no test. (laughs) Uh, First one is framing. So what is the actual decision we're trying to make? What is the question? Are we asking the right question, right? So framing. And then I'm totally going to get the ones in the middle a little wrong. But so I I talked about the three components of each decision before, objectives, options, information. So the middle four kind of relate back to those. So thinking about what are the things that we value? What matters in the outcome? That's one. What are our values? What options do we have? And how do we think creatively about them? So not taking the options that we see just at face value, like, are there other creative ones that we can think of, especially if we understand what our values are, there are ways we can tweak things to, to create new options that may better deliver against those values. Also just thinking about what is the information we have and don't have, and are we processing it in a like logically sound way? Um, and I say that because that's where, where you can think about where bias comes in. And I was talking to Barry Schwartz, the author of Paradox of Choice, last week. Or was that earlier this week? It's been a long week. But he was talking about how you know there's always going to be bias in how we interpret information. But the key to um, combating bias is ensuring that a diverse group of people is involved the decision-making because everyone has biases, but we often have different biases. And if you get a diverse set of people in the room, those diverse biases will cancel each other out. So I think we talked about framing values, creatively thinking about options, um, thinking through information in a logically sound way, thinking through trade-offs. And this is key. You're never going to get everything that you want all the time. And so knowing when push comes to shove, what are the trade-offs you're willing to make? And then lastly, a commitment to action because a decision isn't worth anything unless you're actually going to act on it. So those are the six links of a quality decision. I especially appreciate the last one coming in there because I think so much times there's, we're like, okay, we've done the work, we made the decision, but that next step, that first step, the follow-up in that doesn't happen 
on that side of it. So I really appreciate that coming in to there. And this is, I want to get to another hat that you wear, Michelle, because you are one of the most extraordinary coaches that I know and just how you show up for other people. And I think with decision-making in particular can be a really scary subject. Uh, I think, especially for leaders coming in there, because I think a lot of times with decision-making, it's those moments where we have to admit what we don't know or acknowledge that with our team members and invite that in. And I think it's a space sometimes where um, that self-doubt or imposter syndrome can show up as well. And we're, I, maybe this is some me just sharing my own bits in that piece of it, but it's, it can be a really scary thing to go into. And I think you have this gift and a lot of skill in how you invite people into the conversation around decision-making and not coming at it from a place of judgment, but you being able to serve them through that process. And I'm just, I'm really curious to learn what you've learned over the years and how you've built that trust with the people you help and guide through decision-making. When I think about how it is that I show up as a coach, it always comes back to, and forgive me because I forget who first told this to me really early on in my coaching career, but the quote was around how people, all that people ever really want and need is to be seen, heard, and met where they are. And whenever I'm talking about decision-making, coaching, teaching, that's always in the back of my mind. How is it that I can make sure that they feel seen? How is it that I can make sure that I am actually listening and they feel heard? Because just hearing them and listening is different from them actually feeling heard, right? And how is it that I meet them where they are so that whatever shift or change or puzzle we're working on feels doable? Because when it doesn't, when when someone doesn't feel met where they are, the, the gap feels too big. There's no scaffold. It, and that's when things are scary right? When we feel like we need to make some sort of leap and there's no safety net. So I'm always thinking about that piece. And I think that's why I like talking about the emotional side of decision-making. I I think that's something interesting. I was hanging out with, well, hanging out, I'm putting in air quotes, hanging out at the virtual DAG conference, which is the decision analysis affinity group conference. It was earlier this year. And it's just interesting because at least in, in decision engineering, like traditional decision engineering, it's a very quantitative field. There is a lot of formulas. There's a lot of calculating things. And I think, in again, in that area that is very cognitively focused, there's a general distrust of emotions. But I think in, in the journey of becoming better at decision-making, becoming more confident in decision-making, being able to commit to actions around decision-making, like that's all an emotional journey. You cannot calculate your way to better, to being a better decision-maker. Like often the pitfalls and the, the blocks and the barriers are emotional ones. And I think that when I work with clients and I'm able to name that which they are feeling, and to let them know that it's okay, we can sit with it, and we can decide, you know, what do we want to do with it, then they have that safety to then explore. I love so much of that. Really, it's the the care and consideration that you're bringing to the work that you're doing, I think, really just shows anyone listening, even though they can't see, but shows them the 
uh, how much that caring connection goes a long way in terms of building trust and allowing people to, you know, put themselves in your hands and help them make what I'm assuming they hire you for is making really, really difficult decisions that probably have multitudes of outcomes and, and long lasting impact in their own lives. And so I'd like to take this moment to maybe turn it back a little bit inwards to you, Michelle, and ask with all of the work that you've done in terms of being a trailblazer as a coach, uh, you know, starting your own podcast and being an entrepreneur and working on your own businesses. And I know you have been selected as the inaugural coach for multiple things, like from the Alt-MBA to Forbes's coaching council. And I would love to know, where did you build that trust in yourself to really take that leap forward? I don't know if it was trust in self or trust in the universe or both. <laughs> it's funny because I'm looking at my wall and what I'm looking at is a picture of, of me and Seth. <laughs> because I still remember, I feel like some of these things, this, this trusting in self, the, the phrase that comes up for me is something that, that Seth has advocated that people do, which is pick yourself. And also to do, do things, even if they're a little scary. Right. Um, I still remember there's one point in time where I was chatting with him and, and yeah, I, I was thinking about like, Oh, how am I going to move forward in this space? Should I, should I keep going down this path? So I think it was, I was, I had been working full-time as a coach for a year and that's after two years of incubating it as my side gig. And I remember thinking like, I don't know, should I keep going down this path? It's just like, I have no idea what it's going to look like. And he said, well, you know what I've been doing this past winter? And I'm like, what? I've been taking ski. I think it was, I don't remember what kind of ski lessons it was. It's not like downhill ski lessons. I don't know if it was cross country, but it was some special like fancy ski sport. I'm not a snow person. I live in California. I lived in Bay area my entire life, but I was like, Oh, okay. Uh, he said, Oh yeah. And I'm taking lessons from this Olympian. I'm like, wow, you are fancy. He said, but you know, I, the Olympian was telling me I needed to lean forward. And, and, you know, when you lean forward and you lean, 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 lean past your toes, you almost kind of feel like you're going to fall. Right. And, he was talking about how the Olympian was telling him that, you know, oh, it must've been some sort of like ski racing or something like that, because he talked about how the person who leans forward the most tends to be the one who wins. And I was just like, that seems so scary to lean forward so far, like so far over, you think you're going to fall and lose your balance. He said, yes, but, you know, leaning into the things that scare us is the entire point, isn't it? And I was like, <sighs> let me just sit with that for a bit. Why do I know this is exactly the wisdom that I need right now? Gah. So when I, when I think about like, how could I trust myself? Sometimes I don't, but I just need to lean into it because even if I don't trust myself, again, I think one of the things we talked about in the Alt-MBA is this might work, this might not work. And when I say work, I mean work in the way that I, I think it's going to, but even when it doesn't work, 
there is learning to be had. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answered your question. I guess the thing is like, sometimes I don't trust myself. Sometimes most of the time I'm still afraid. And, and I think that's also what's important about decision-making. I think what gets people stuck is that a lot of people feel like, oh, I can't make a decision or I can't move forward until I know it's going to be the right decision. And I think that type of mindset is one where, where they're treating decision-making like shooting an arrow. Oh, I need to, I need to get it to hit the bullseye because if it doesn't, it's been a total miss. But the thing is, decision-making is less like shooting an arrow and more like steering a ship. It's like, okay, let me, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to go this way. And, and then I get hit by a wave. I'm like, okay, never mind. I don't want to go that way. I'm going to make another decision. I'm going to go this way. And that, that is true, right? Like when we go through life, it's never just one decision and we aim and we let go and that's it. And even if life were that way, wouldn't it be super boring? Like you just made one decision and that's it. That analogy is never going to leave my brain. So thank you for that. And I, I just want to mention to Seth, the Seth Godin, and we'll link his blog in the show notes as well. And through our connection in, uh, in the ultimate but it feels like such a Seth story as well of, you know, lean forward. That's where you need to go. And I, I love how you named like that fear is there. And I think what you're getting to, I think, especially right now for leaders and still facing so much uncertainty is I think you're getting to the heart of both leadership and trust and that, you know, leadership isn't leading people through necessarily a known path forward and a process where there's a guarantee on the other side of it. I think the moments where leadership is really needed is in face of all, in the face of all that uncertainty. And when leaders really are you know, working to, you know, navigate or co-navigate that ship with their team and they're having to trust because the outcome isn't guaranteed and may not be what you expected. And I also love that frame of learning and looking at that as to where's the gift in this, where's the lesson, regardless of the outcome coming in. So I just, yeah, I feel like there's so much wisdom in those stories you've just shared in that analogy as well. And I want to press you for maybe one more, more thing to leave our leaders with. And you've already given some really fantastic practical wisdom, but would love to know what practical advice would you give to any leaders right now that are looking to make better decisions or higher quality decisions? It's funny that you talk about practical wisdom because I'm going to talk about that again, side plug for Barry's, but Oh, I don't think I mentioned that. So Barry Schwartz, who wrote the paradox of choice also wrote a book called practical wisdom. And it's about how wisdom is different from knowledge. Wisdom is born from experience. It's born from getting it right and getting it wrong. And so I think the path towards making better decisions, becoming a better decision maker, like that path is paved with some decisions that aren't going to feel that great. And I think the, the more that we can sit with that and accept that, the easier that path is going to be. I like that. And I think it, it reminds me that one of the most interesting things that I've learned about decision-making is really going back to that earlier advice you had about decoupling outcomes and quality of decisions, because I think framing things back as, okay, like this was a bad outcome, but a good decision makes it so much easier to make another decision knowing that, okay, yeah, like sometimes you make a decision and bad things happen, 
but that's just kind of part of the game and you have to just keep showing up in order to get better and stronger at making those decisions. Michelle, this has been super amazing and I feel like I've taken away so much about making decisions here, but I'd love to know what is coming up for you? Like in time or right here in the moment? Because, you know, that could be a coaching question for, you know, what's coming up for you? What is right coming now? up for you? It could be, <laughs> how, however, and or maybe both. Let's just say both. Um, I guess what's coming up for me just in the moment is this joy. Like, I love talking about decision-making. I love talking about decision-making. So thank you for having me here and letting me talk about decision-making. Uh, I think from a, a time perspective, what is coming up in the future, I'm gearing up to teach a course for Stanford continuing studies on decision-making and emotional awareness. And so that'll be running in uh, October, November. And it's because it's Stanford continuing studies, it's open to the public. So that's something that anyone can enroll in if they're interested. Uh, let's see, other things on the horizon. I've been getting a lot of requests from coaches who want to learn more about the frameworks that I use to, to help people through decision-making. And so I'm going to be designing and possibly piloting a coach's training on decision mapping. And so that might happen Q4 of this year, maybe, we'll see. I find that my work goes much more slowly now that I'm parenting in a pandemic. So I'm trying to give myself a little bit of grace, but that's coming up on the horizon. Those are so exciting. And I think there are going to be some very eager learners for both those. I'm excited that you're running those. I'd love if you could just share, we're going to put this all in the show notes of just where can people find out more about you and some of your projects if they're curious to learn more? Yeah. Uh, well, if people want to hear me talk about decision-making more, they can tune into my podcast. It's called Ask a Decision Engineer. You can find that wherever you find your podcasts. Also, if you want to just find out more about the work that I do and my various offerings, you can find me on the interwebs at michelleflorendo.com. Amazing. Like we said, we'll get it all in the show notes. So make sure you just click that. If you need to find out more, thank you so much, Michelle. This has been amazing. This has been so fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap for this episode of In Trust. Thanks for listening. Remember that trust is better together. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with someone who you think might appreciate it and leave us a review. The In Trust podcast is produced by Spotlight Trust where we help leaders and organizations put trust at the center of their work so they can achieve more than they ever thought possible while adapting to our fast-changing world. If you'd like to get in touch with us, simply email podcast at spotlighttrust.com.